And again, we're glad you're here. And we today, in our message, are going to talk about how to take the complicated out of coming home. Now, you would think, well, what's so complicated about coming home? Well, just think about every time you go home for a family reunion or for a holiday. It's complicated, isn't it? (laughs) Will everything be just right? Will the meal be right? Will my sister make the mashed potatoes properly, like mom used to make them? Will we? There's all these details. It's complicated. And sometimes when we come back to church, it can be complicated too, can't it? So for just for the simple reason, and I've heard some people say this, you know, we got comfortable going to church in our pajamas every week. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. It got a little off. I mean, once in a while, going to church in your pajamas feels good, but we, some of us got a little bit um, too far and didn't want to come back. And I don't know about you, there is nothing like what we just experienced singing together and worshiping together, right? You can't get that at home. You can't feel that at home. It's, it's wonderful. And so, uh, you know, s- sometimes there's people there that we know will be there that we've had some conflict with. Maybe there's new leadership in place when you come back. Maybe changes have been made to the building. Maybe something, it can just be complicated coming back to church. Will it ever be like it was like 25 years ago when Pastor so-and-so was here? We, you've never said anything like that, right? You've never heard anybody say anything like that in church before. Oh, we do that, don't we? I want to talk this morning, I want to begin our message in a story from Judges chapter 11 about a man who was coming home and his expectations for what it would be like when he came home created disaster. Judges chapter 11 speaks to us about a man named Jephthah. How many of you heard of Jephthah before? Jephthah created a disaster for himself. Let's talk about who Jephthah was. Jephthah was a mighty warrior. And if you actually look at the, his life story, the first two-thirds of his life story really resembles that of Joseph. He was the son of his father's other woman, just like Joseph was. He, uh, there was dispute over birthright and inheritance, so much so that his brothers uh, from another mother actually got rid of him. They cast him out because they were worried that he would get their share of the inheritance. So they got rid of him, just like Joseph, thrown into the pit, you know, sent off to Egypt. Very similar. So Jephthah was, was thrown out of his people because he came from the wrong mother and didn't get his inheritance. He lived a very difficult life, and the wrong kind of people gathered around him, but he seemed to have a knack of leadership turning people around, getting them on the right track. And he apparently gained a lot of fame as a leader and a warrior. Because when the Ammonites decided that they were going to conquer Israel, to conquer God's people, they came, Israel came to their outcast son, Jephthah. And they said, please lead us, please lead us and and help us conquer the Ammonites. And he said, I'll do it on one condition. When I come back, I want to lead your people for good. 
think he wanted a little bit of justice there, it sounded like. And so, oh, they said, oh, fine. You know, Israel had this horrible, um, horrible habit of when they were afraid they were going to be conquered, they made all sorts of bad choices and bad alliances. And I don't know if this was one or not, but certainly it was out of fear. So Jephthah first tried diplomatic ways of dealing with the Ammonites, and none of those worked. They didn't work. He made promises, said, well, if you don't want to conquer us, this will happen. And actually, this dispute, interestingly enough, comes from the Exodus story. Do you remember when Moses said, uh, go, go to these people. We need to cross through their land and get permission to cross through their land. And they go to the king, the Amorites, and the Amorite king says, nope, you can't cross through our land. You'll bring us nothing but no good. And so God cursed them and said, I'm going to give you the portion of land that you should have got or you should have passed through on your exodus journey. And so this dispute was actually by the Ammonite king saying, we want our land back. And Jephthah says, sorry, God gave us this land. It's ours now. And so diplomatic efforts were not successful. War was imminent. And Jephthah, before they go into war, he makes a horrible, 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 boneheaded vow. He says, Lord, if you give me victory over my enemies, when I go back home... I will give you as an offering the first thing that walks out my front door. Now, as the story goes, they did, in fact, conquer their enemy quite easily, in fact. And Jephthah, on his way back home, probably in triumph and cheer, he had come back home numerous times, and probably every time he came back home, it was a goat that came and greeted him first, maybe out in the pasture. Or it was the family dog, I don't know. But it certainly wasn't his daughter. But this time, that was the first one to come out his front door and greet him when he came home. Jephthah made a vow based on what he thought his experience would be like when he returned home. How many of us have stopped ourselves from coming back to church based on an idea of what it would be like when we go back? How many bad decisions are made to not reunite with family in our lives because we think we know how it will go if we go back? You see, Jephthah made this vow based on the idea that he knew exactly what to expect when he would go home. Well, just like every time I go home, every time I go home, it's the goat that, vote, that greets me first. I'm going to give that goat as an offering to the Lord. But this time when he went home, that's not what happened. And as the story goes, and Bible scholars sort of debate what exactly happened next, whether he actually offered his daughter or he offered her to service to the Lord, or he found a different way to offer something else. Bible scholars are, uh, are skeptical. They're not sure exactly what happened next. But either way, they know that somehow the daughter was involved. 
and he did, in fact, make good on his vow. Whether she was sacrificed or not, we're not sure. Judges was a crazy time. It actually sounds a lot like today, as a sidebar here. You know the key, to the key verse to the book of Judges? Do you know what it is? It's the very last one. You want to understand all the craziness that goes on in the book of Judges? Read the very last book of the book of Judges, or the very last verse in the book of Judges. Do you know what it says? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I mean, there's all kinds of craziness in the book of Judges. There's rape, there's incest, there's murder, there's just, just I mean, the craziest stories you could ever come up with. And the Bible at the very end, feel, the, the author of Judges says, you know, I feel compelled to explain to you why this, is, this was the way that it was. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We're getting there, aren't we? We're really getting back there. And, but, but, but Jephthah made this horrible vow based on an expectation of what it would be like when he came back home. What it would feel like, what he would experience, what would take place. In actuality, this is a common problem throughout Scripture. An expectation of what home will be or should be getting people in trouble. An expectation about what home is, and it's not the actual home. Well, let me break down what I mean by this. Let's think about this. What did the followers, what did the Jews believe home would be like in Jesus' day? Or what it should be like in Jesus' day? Describe to me what, that, what, what they thought it would be like. Free of oppression, who'd be in charge? Well, I will say, wave, free of oppression, not exactly because they just wanted to be in charge. So they wouldn't admit that they wanted to be the oppressor, but they would have ended up being the oppressor. And we see that with the attitudes of people that were trying to lead them from oppression. Saul of Tarsus. The terrorists that were some of Jesus' disciples. That's, that's what we're dealing with in some of these people. It's a human system, so there's always going to be oppression. But yes, free of oppression. What are some of those other things that they expected. No more Romans, no more taxes. The streets will be blessed. There will be kids everywhere. No one will die at a young age. All those blessings. Uh, we'll be the head and not the tail. We'll be the most prominent people in all the world. And uh, kings from all other nations will come and just see how wonderful we are. You remember all those Bible promises. Here was the thing, though. Was that home ever meant to be? It wasn't. It was never meant to be, and I'm about to blow your mind right now, okay? Seriously, I did it with Noah last week, or two weeks ago, whenever that was. I'm going to do it again. Heaven as we know it, heaven as we know it and we see it, is nowhere in the Old Testament. The descriptions of heaven, or what we think of as heaven, are nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. All of their interpretation of Old Testament heaven was based on Old Covenant thinking. And that's why in Isaiah, you read verses that say things like, no one will die at a young age. We're going, no one will die at a young age. In heaven, no one ever dies. 
That's because their concept of heaven is not what our concept of heaven is. Now, what can we do with the Old Testament? We look back into the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the New Testament, to see which of those verses apply to a New Covenant, New Testament ideology of what heaven actually is. But if you are an Old Testament person, reading and writing the Old Testament, your concept of heaven is not our concept of heaven. How about that? And here's the thing. Their expectations about what home or quote-unquote heaven would be were off base. Give me some examples, some names. I can think of one. How about Saul of Tarsus? What did Saul do? He, tr- he thought that God would make their home right if he went out and killed uh, Israelites who were not living up to the law. His idea was, if we purify Israel, God will make good on his promise to send us the Messiah. So think about this. A bad concept of, I keep using quote fingers, but I can't help it. Home led one of the most prominent religious leaders of the time to justify murder. Because that's what Saul was doing. And it all came from a bad ideology of what home should be like. And there's case after case after case of this. Even the, the flat-out racism that the Jews had over the Samaritans. They're half-breeds, they're half-bloods, they're dogs. They don't belong with us. We need pure, pure Israel. Israel purified. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what home will be. A false concept, a bad ideology of what home should be. Let me give you a great example, another great example. Remember when Jesus was on trial? Jesus was on trial with another man, and Pilate offered to set free Jesus or Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a terrorist. He was a murderer. He was a thief, known, tried, and convicted. Because the people did not see their concept of home in Jesus, they chose Barabbas, the murderer, the terrorist, the convicted thief. Jesus did not represent the version of home that they were expecting. So they chose a terrorist, a murderer, and a thief over the creator of the universe. See how important it is of what our concept of home is? I mean, time and time and time again, Israel wanted to hold on to their ideology of home so badly that they were so afraid they would lose it, they would make alliances with other kings and kingdoms to try to preserve what they had, and they didn't pay attention to disaster after disaster after disaster in their history making alliances with these kings, they would fear for it every time, and 
every time they'd come under the oppression of the king they made an alliance with. Every single time. But they were so worried about losing home that they couldn't bear the fear and they wouldn't trust God. Fear of trying to hold on to a concept of home or a bad concept of home was what made Nebuchadnezzar throw the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace. You know that whole trial, that's what that was about, right? Nebuchadnezzar felt threatened that Babylon wasn't going to last forever. The Babylon that he thought, that he, he believed in, that he wanted, that he desired, that he had built up. God had given him a vision through Daniel that there's another kingdom coming and Nebuchadnezzar couldn't handle it. And so he was willing to murder three Hebrew boys who simply wouldn't, wouldn't bow down before his symbol of unity and solidarity that he had set up. Time and time again, we humans make these mistakes. Let's think about this in the New Testament now. Did the New Testament characters have the same concept of heaven or home that we do? Think very carefully before you answer. Did Peter and Paul and Mary, did Peter and Paul and, and Matthew, did they have our concept of heaven and home? Did they have it, yes or no? No, they didn't. You know why? Because they were reading the Old Testament. And not only were they reading the Old Testament, they had the entire mindset of the Jewish people in the first century. And that was, let's get rid of the Romans, let's rise to prominence, let's be the head and not the tail in this world. That's why Judas gave up Jesus. Judas gave up Jesus because he saw how powerful Jesus was. He actually believed he was the Messiah, but he didn't think Jesus was going about it right. Think, uh, this, as I was thinking about this this week, it really blew me away. It was not until the book of Revelation was, was written that we begin to have specific details that agree with what you and I believe about heaven. The golden streets, the pearly gates, where there is no night, and the holy city. They didn't have any of that until John wrote Revelation. Isn't that incredible? And, and even after that, they were still confused. This evolved and God taught us as, as time went on. So how in the world did they ever make it through? How did people remain faithful if they didn't have a clear vision of what home was actually like? You know why? Because that's not what faith is about. Faith is not about heaven. It's not. If you are trying to get through the troubles of this world, holding on hope that there's a heaven coming, you're going to get discouraged real quick. Heaven is not the motivation for faith. Relationship with Jesus Christ is motivation for faith. If there were nothing else in heaven except you sitting with Jesus, talking and communing with him, would that be enough? And that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's what gets us through today and today's struggles. Psalm 23 says, 
he makes us a table in the presence of our enemies. It doesn't say he gets rid of our enemies. He says he makes a table of communion in the presence of our enemies. So in other words, as David's hearing Goliath shout, it doesn't matter what Goliath is saying. It doesn't matter what those voices outside are saying or the ridicule I'm hearing or the problems that are created by this troubling world. In the presence of my enemies, while they're still shouting, I can sit and commune with my Savior. That's heaven. That's home. Home is being in the presence of the one that we love and the ones that we love. We always, you know, pastors move. We've always said to our children, home is not a house, it's not a building. Home is not a place, it's not a state. Home is where your family is. That's home. And we even think of this building as God's house. God doesn't live here. And people get in arguments. Well, this is God's house, so it has to look like this and sound like this and be decorated like that. We get in arguments about that. God doesn't live here. In the Old Testament, there was a sanctuary service and the presence of the Lord dwelt in the most holy place of the sanctuary. This is not an Old Testament sanctuary. You know whose house this is? Our house where we gather as a family to worship God. But the problem is, you know what we do? What we do is we apply our idea to what God's house should be, and then we expect everyone else to share that same ideology as if they think like we do, and then we judge each other and say, that's not up to standard. When really what we should be doing is saying, we're a family, and I'm going to appreciate my brother. So if my brother has different decor decorative ideas than I do, I'm going to celebrate that. This is not where God lives. God meets us here, but that's because his family meets here. The, the new Jerusalem is called a bride coming down from heaven, but you know what else he calls his bride? The church. The church is his bride. You know why he intermingles the two uh, analogies? The city being his bride and his people being his bride? Because the city doesn't mean anything to God if we're not there. It's always about the family. And family and home is wherever the family is. But you know the first thing the devil does to us? When home doesn't resemble what we think it should... Or when we've had trouble at home, what does he tempt us to do? Leave home. Leave home. Doesn't look like it used to look. Doesn't sound like it used to sound like. What if the home that the church is now is the home that you need now? You ever thought about that? We all want to hold on to our concept of home, and I'm going to get into that. We want to hold on to what it was. But what if God's saying, wait a second, this is my family, and my family is growing and maturing and, and, and learning. My family is evolving in faith, and, and, and now what our family looks like is actually what you need to experience now for your own journey. I had a couple other notes about 
the New Testament people being off base in, in their ideology of what home was. But did you know that First and Second Thessalonians, one of Paul's major issues that he's dealing with in both of those letters, is that they have a really bad concept. They're very confused about heaven and when Jesus will return and what's about to happen. A lot of First and Second Thessalonians is, hey, everybody, calm down. Let me explain this to you. And even Paul didn't have the full picture until John wrote Revelation. Let me say this to you. If you make heaven and or home all about your expectations, you can discourage your own self right out of faith. Let me say that a different way. If you make your church all about your expectations, you will discourage yourself right out of your own faith. If you make your family whether it's church family or biological family, if you make your family all about your expectations, you can discourage yourself right out of your own family. I believe that when we put our, we put our children in a bad place too. Because the way we describe heaven to our children is all about the animals and the golden streets and all the wonderful things that will be in heaven. And isn't that great news? It is, isn't it? It's great news, but the thing about it is, our kids are living here now. And there's a lot of really great stuff to experience here now, isn't there? And so we leave our kids to compare what I will have then to what I can experience now. And it's a whole lot easier to choose now, isn't it? Than to wait till then. We don't teach our kids that, you know what? Home and heaven is about a relationship with our family and a relationship with Jesus. You see, the gospel is the key to our kids seeing what heaven is really about. We can't leave our kids simply with the concept of the animals. And by the way, I can't wait to hug a panda. I can't wait to jump on the back of a lion. I can't wait to do those things. Pandas, you see some of these panda videos? They look like they're having the most fun every day. They're rolling around, and they're eating, and they're playing ball. And I saw one where they, I mean, look these up on YouTube. They're hysterical. They put a snowman in the panda enclosure, and they have just a ball with the snowman. Panda looks like a good buddy to have. I can't wait to experience those things. But you know what? What if it comes down to playing with a panda in heaven? Or getting married in this world. Some of you ever pray that? Lord, I, Lord Jesus, I want you to come, but I want you to wait until I get married. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I want you to come, but I want you to wait until I have kids. Lord Jesus, I want you to come, but I want you to wait until whatever the next achievement is. Here's the thing. There aren't ever enough achievements to make us want to say, stop saying, Lord, wait. There's always something next. Until you get really old and achy and everything's already been accomplished, and you're like, okay, Lord, now it's time. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is, you see what we do when you're a young adult or you're an adolescent, we make them compare. What we need to be telling them is, what you're longing for in a relationship is actually what you're actually longing for in a relationship with Jesus. That's where people get so off base today. They think, I can't be myself. I can't be my true self unless I'm in a relationship with this person or that person. 
I can't fulfill who I'm supposed to be without living out this identity or that identity. We've got it all wrong. We can't look in the mirror to find our identity. We can't, we can't look to another human to complete us. That's false ideology. It's, it's wrong. We're made to be with God, and that's it. So another relationship with a human being is not going to fulfill what you think you're longing for. It's nice, it's good, but it's not going to fulfill your heart. You complete me. Remember that movie? You had me at hello. You ever hear me talk about soulmates? Have I talked about soulmates here? A couple of people. Okay, I got to remind you. A soulmate is not in the Bible anywhere. Not used one time. Uh, your other half is not a biblical concept. They're both Greek. Here, think about this. So Adam is, is in the newly created world with the Lord. They're walking around, they're enjoying Eden, and Adam goes, he's walking face to face with the God of the universe, by the way. Right? And so here's Adam. Oh God, I can't be my true self without a wife. I'm so lonely. I need someone to complete me. Isn't it silly? Get a panda. Go hug a panda. That's right. It was God who said it's not good for man to be alone. You know why? Because everything in Eden, God put there to teach us more about him. And he knew through that human relationship that Adam and Eve were going to learn more. But it didn't mean Adam was half a person. Think of all the horrible mistakes and hardships that have been made on account of sexuality and relationships in this world. If everyone walked around this world and said, I'm complete in Jesus. I know who I am. I know what he wants of me. I know where I'm supposed to go. And walked with that confidence that you are complete in him, how much better would our lives be? Because again, it's about relationship with him, isn't it? And so if you're viewing your future mate as more relationship with him, you're not looking for a human to complete you, which they never can. You're looking to learn more about Jesus, which is why we have to do it his way. Because if he's designed sexuality to teach us more about him, we have to do it his way to learn it the way he, he wanted to teach it. And if you're not inclined that way, you're just as complete as a person who's married. Because another human does not complete you. Nor ever can they. If we could get that in our minds. By the way, other halves comes from a Greek myth. You can read it in Plato, his book Symposium. They're all sitting around and talking about different ideologies about what love is. And one guy stands up and he says, I think love is this. When man was created, we were created with two heads, four arms, and four legs. This is what the Greeks believed. One day, man decided it was going to throw, climb up Mount Olympus and throw Zeus off his throne. And so to curse man, Zeus cut mankind in half. Ever to curse man to search the world for their other half 
or their soul mate. If a preacher, if you ever hear a preacher say, my wife is my other half, chastise that person. <laughs> it's not biblical. It's not accurate, and it sets up a whole mess of garbage in our hearts and in our minds. Not only that, it dooms relationships to fail. Because I'm getting off on a tangent, but this is one I get... If, if you're married and a person feels like they're not completing you anymore, right? They're not completing me anymore. What is the natural inclination to do based on your idea about what relationships are for? If a person is there to complete me and I don't feel like they're completing me anymore, I'm going to look for somebody else to complete me. It's stupid human passion overriding biblical truth. What if the struggle to stay connected, is part of learning about God. Because that's what that relationship was always designed to be anyway. Family is home. Family is home. Family, home is where family is. I wonder if Jesus was, was intentionally vague about heaven. I mean, we hear Jesus teaching about heaven, but we never say, in heaven, there are golden streets. Never hear that from Jesus. We do hear, my father's house, there are many mansions. Was that more literal, or was that more to just describe heavens being prepared and uh, likening it to the, the marriage, uh, you know, the marriage ceremonies of the day? I don't know. Jesus was always like, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a sower sowing seed. You know, the kingdom of heaven. But, Lord, can you imagine what the disciples were thinking? A sower sowing seed? Lord, I don't want to be under oppression from the Romans anymore. And you're talking to me about a guy sowing seed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. No, not blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the strong who kill the Romans. See, a bad ideology of what home is threw everything off. They didn't even recognize the kingdom of God when he was standing right in front of them. I think maybe... Jesus was intentionally vague because some of those details would throw us off too. It's beyond the comprehension of what we can understand. It's beyond human words. Even what John gives us in Revelation, I think it's the best he could come up with. Okay, so we're going to bring this plane to land here because I know you're getting hungry. So, how do we take the complicated out of coming home? Whether it's going home to have a family reunion or whether it's coming back to church and staying. Number one. You ready? Number one. Leave behind all expectations. Leave behind all expectations. I expect my church to be like... We've just learned that church is not about the formalities. Church is about the family. So leave behind expectations. I guarantee you, if you go to church without any expectations, other than meeting the Lord there, you will never be disappointed. Leave behind all expectations. Number two, what home was may never be again. But what home is now may be exactly what you need. You know, things have changed since COVID, and it's never going back to the way it was. 
I hate that term, new normal, but that's what they're using. It's not about new normal. It's just that as you grow and as you experience things in life, things change. And that's where we are now. By the way, I like our new screens, don't you? No, let's take those, the way we had it before, let's put that big screen, that big ugly screen back up again. Oh, that's my expectation. I called it ugly. Maybe that's just Pastor Hall. No, it was ugly. And it didn't even work. You know that, right? You couldn't put it up and down. That's why it was up all the time. You know, but that, that's not the way it was before, Pastor. We didn't have these newfangled televisions, but you can see them, can't you? And you can read the lyrics off of them, and they work most of the time. But that's not the way it was before. And it's not just that. It's also what we learned. The, the leadership and I spent hours and hours praying and, and talking over what are some of the issues? What are some of the things that were broken here? What are some of the things we need to discuss and get out in the open? We spent hours doing that. And in, in a very real way, it's like relaunching the church. It's about starting over after we were forced underground and now it's time to spring forth to new life. Number three, the relics from before serve as great memories and reminders. If you, if you want a great memory of that screen, we've got it stashed somewhere. It weighs like 300 pounds. But if you want to put it up in your house, let us know. That reminds me of the glory days of Port Charlotte Church. I think I've got to have that. You know, we laugh at this stuff, but people get hung up on this kind of stuff. We need to leave behind the, the ideologies of the relics of before. They might serve as great memories, but they do not and must not determine our future. When you left home and your parents turned your bedroom into a, a home gym, did that mean that they loved you any less? But my room! But I didn't do that to my room because it's up in the attic and there's no AC up there and it's like 700 degrees. So my room never became the home gym. But the fact that the formality of your room is still there doesn't make it mean that your parents love you any less. Home is about your family. Number four, don't let the consistency of the mashed potatoes ruin your experience. These aren't like mom used to make them. They have lumps. And mom made the creamiest mashed potatoes. And I don't know what my sister's doing, but she just can't seem to figure out how to make mashed potatoes. And she insists on making those every year. That's some of you in the car ride on the way to Thanksgiving dinner. We do the same things in church, right? It's the same kind of stuff. It doesn't look quite right or like it used to, or it doesn't sound quite right or like it used to, and so we judge. But what if the lumpy mashed potatoes are exactly what we need to remember mom's creamy mashed potatoes and the lady that loved us so much to slave over them? Except the lumpy mashed potatoes. I don't like lumpy mashed potatoes. But you get the point. At least the lumpy potatoes remind you of mom's creamy ones and ultimately mine. Number five, home is subjective. You know that, right? You ever had two siblings? Lived the same, had the same upbringing, exactly the same upbringing. 
but they see the parents and the house in two totally opposite ways. Home is subjective. Problem is, we fight over our version. We don't listen to what the other person says. We fight over our version. And it gets us into trouble. Here we go. Are you ready for this? Celebrate everyone's views, everyone's views of what home should be. Within reason. It's a preacher, you have to qualify everything that people think are going off the deep end. Within reason. Number six, home is always where your family is. It is not the form and function. It's not the relics and sounds and sights. It's the people. It's the people. Number seven, every single trip home, every time you come to church, it's an opportunity for a fresh start. Don't hold the crudges. Don't hold the hurts. Don't try to heat up that rivalry just because you think you'll make the other person pay. How many of you read that book, Forgive to Live? Oh, it was written by one of the doctors at Florida Hospital, and it is absolutely excellent. He uses this illustration about the, there was this village of people, and uh, they all carried around a rock, and that rock represented their grudge against somebody. And it, it was this weight they had to carry, and so basically their posture was all bad because they always were carrying around these heavy rocks. Nobody would drop the rock. And, and these rocks, not only were they heavy, but they were also heated. And now and then, the heat from that rock would begin to cool off. And they thought, well, I have to carry this rock because it's, it's, it's getting back at that person that I'm mad at. It's getting back. If I drop this rock, it's letting, letting them off the hook. The only person it was hurting was them because they're carrying around the weight and it's burning their hand. And not only that, the, the rock in time would begin to cool off. And so they had a choice to make. Do I drop the cooling rock? Or do I go back to the center of town in the oven and heat it back up? Because just in case I might have a chance to throw this rock, or just in case if it cools off and I don't drop it, I need to hold on to it. By the way, the only person the rock is hurting is you. Drop the rock. Drop the rock. And you will feel better. We'll all feel better. Number eight, God doesn't need you to defend his home. Say that again. God does not need you or me to defend his home. He is enough. He can take care of it himself. What we end up doing is we think we're defending God's home, but it's really just our version of home. And that's why nobody else understands where we're coming from. We're defending our idea of home and not really realizing this, all of us, we are home together. And this home is the place where we meet. Number nine, you can either resent your brother or sister for what they have become or what they represent, or you can appreciate, love, and encourage them in the person that they are. I guarantee you that if you do the second one, you will be much happier in life. What if we all celebrated each other and encouraged each other for the people that we are, not what we would expect them to be? 
Right now, I want you to do an exercise with me. I want you to start each, each pew. We're all lined up in pews. That's the glory, beauty of pews. I want to start on this end. People on this end, to the person on your left, I want you to say, I can't change you, so I'll just love you. And then say it to the person on your left, all the way across the church. Can you start over here? Say it right, you got a pew right here. Start on the left. I can't change you, so I'll just love you. Deacons, say it to your sister. I can't change you, so I'll just love you. I can't change you, so I'll just love you. Who's the only one that can change us? The Holy Spirit. Stop trying to do the Holy Spirit's job. Love each other, create a safe place, and we'll learn and grow. And number 10, if we are a family, there is only one team. One Team together in the Lord. Here at Fort Charlotte Seventh-day Adventist Church, we are making a fresh start. Are you excited for that? Yes. We're leaving behind us some of the things and the mistakes that we've made in the past, some of the things that hurt others, some of the issues that existed. We're updating the grounds. We're updating our hearts. We're updating our ministries to minister to this family and to reach out to this community. I hope you want to be a part of that. And this is exactly what we need right now. In this fresh start, we know that every heart needs revival and change. Can you say amen to that? We know that a lot of hurt has come in the past due to racial issues and divide, and we're working through them. Do you want to work through them? Too much has been made over worship styles in the past, and music, and culture, and tradition. We are working to appreciate everyone and where they come from. Can you say amen to that? We must not, cannot tolerate the actions of people who would put preference, tradition, and personal agendas above this family. We are working on taking care of our house with new technology, upgrades, new signs, and letting the community know that we're here. Amen? We have started new partnerships for community service with the health department. We're collecting diapers. We're doing different things. I know it's a different form, and I know uh, many hearts were broken because a, a, a long-standing ministry had stood, but just there were some details and some things that had happened that just forced our hand. So we need to transition. We need to transition. And right now we have been making a difference in the lives of children that are born, babies that are born addicted to opiates. And in the future, we may have the opportunity to sign up for a weekly time slot where you get to go in and cuddle and cradle and rock opioid-addicted babies and help them through their addiction. You may have noticed that this pulpit will share real life with you. Good, nice, Fuzzy gospel sermons are good. 
But I don't know about you, but I'm tired of an Adventist church who knows about the great controversy, but does a terrible job of telling people how to live through it. We're going to be real. We're going to be vulnerable. We're going to talk about real issues because we're humans and we are family and families talk about issues. You will see church leadership fight for, for the vulnerable, the silent sufferers, the people who are on the margins. You've seen this already. We've had to speak up about certain issues and, and backlash, but we will fight for people that are marginalized. We will fight for people that are silent sufferers. We will be about our family here, this family, period. And we will be about bringing more people into this family. It's a new day here. This is a fresh start. Don't let prior expectations of what home should be hold us back from moving toward the new home here that we all need to be a part of. Sometimes it's complicated going home, but it doesn't have to be. It's a new day. It's a fresh start. God has brought us through the difficult year. We're back. And we're energized. And we're ready. Let's do His work. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this wonderful day. The music, the reunion, seeing faces that we haven't seen in so long, seeing new faces, Lord, it's such a wonderful blessing. Today was a special day, and Lord, it continues as we go over for lunch and a little bit more music in the afternoon, and Lord, we ask that you'd continue to bless this wonderful reunion in this coming home. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, and Lord, may we not hold on to our preconceived notions about what home should be. May we be the home that someone needs. Home is not a building. Home is not a place. Home is wherever the family is. And we are your family. Lord, thank you for this gift. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.